Isaiah 40, verse 1. So, this is that division of the 39th chapter that comes into 40, where a lot of people want to insist that there are at least two different Isaiahs that are writing. I don't pretend to be a scholar that would be able to distinguish um, those things as far as writing style and personality and all that's involved in being able to determine that. I take a much more simple approach, I think, and I think it's a much safer approach, and that is Jesus quotes from the entire book of Isaiah, what others would say is one Isaiah and then the other, and he refers to them as a single man, as the writings of Isaiah. So Jesus doesn't make any distinction between the first 39 chapters or the end of the book or certain phrases at all. He says it's all the same man. Um, I, I think that the minute that people start to act like or literally say that they know better than Jesus, then they're claiming that either they know better than God or they're saying that Jesus is not God, that he's uh, a human and you know capable of mistakes. Everything at that point begins to fall apart. Um, you know, you start questioning one portion of the Word of God like that, and you might as well just throw the whole thing away because everything's up for grabs at that point. Uh, you know, the, the Word of God claims to be God-breathed as, as a whole, and either it is or it isn't. It's either true or it's false. I hold wholeheartedly to the whole of the book being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Big change from the first 39 uh, chapters to these last chapters. And uh, the grace of God begins in chapter 40. Uh, the judgment and all the threat and worry and concern. And you'll recall that Hezekiah had welcomed those ambassadors from what was essentially just a tribe. It was a growing tribe and an influential tribe, the Babylonians at the time, uh, but within a hundred years, they were going to be the world power. And when he welcomed them in as king of Judah, he showed them everything that was valuable. And then, you know, around a hundred years later, when they came and sacked uh, Jerusalem, that's what they came for, was the wealth and all of the great prosperity that God had provided them for. He opened the door in weakness of pride, showing them the resources that God had given them. And uh, it whet their appetite, the Babylonians, their sinful lust for what uh, the nation of Judah, the people of Israel had. Then you come to chapter 40, and it starts right out. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Now, I like not only the idea that that is what God is doing here in 
this Old Testament passage for the nation of Israel. But I like the fact that this is a major theme of God. So very often we get the impression that, you know, from people in in the faith, in Christianity, that uh, God is angry. He's judgmental. And and certainly there is judgment, uh, but, you know, there is grace for his children. There is mercy uh, for those that have surrendered their lives to the Lord. And, you know, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. So, you know, before we move on tonight, I hope you're able to set that tone in your own heart about God in general and about this passage as we study it, that what God has to say to those who are surrendering their lives to him, giving themselves over to him, is comfort and peace, that he wants to bless us. He wants to give us ease. Now, now, you know, I, I say these sorts of things. Other preachers preach God's grace and comfort, and, and uh, you know, there's an angry bunch of legalists amongst us who don't like that. You know, they, they uh, live under a cloud of judgment and uh, condemnation, and they don't like it when other people are embracing God's grace. Um, they will use terms like sloppe agape, you know, God's love. It's just, you know, you're just flinging that stuff around like there isn't judgment. Guess what? There's not for those of us that have surrendered to Christ. If we live wasteful lives as believers, sinful lives as believers, we're going to miss out on a lot of blessing. But God's grace is still what saves us. You know, I I was with a parent who had just lost their child. And they were mourning beyond belief. And they said in that moment, I'm not sure how strong they were in their walk. Therefore, I don't know where they are right now. And I said, wait a minute. What are you saying about their salvation? Was it that their conduct saved them? Or was it the grace of God that saved them? If they were especially good, did that give them entrance into God's presence? If they were especially bad, are you saying that they lost their salvation? Or are you saying that the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross is what gave them salvation, and they agreed. It was Jesus Christ's finished work at the cross. I said, okay. Did they express faith in Jesus' finished work at the cross? I knew they had, but I'm walking them through it, and they said yes. I said, did they ever renounce that? No. Did they publicly declare right until the end, that they were a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, then they're in the presence of the Lord. We're saved by grace, through faith, not of works, lest anyone boast. You see, if we don't like that, then really what we're saying is that we are working our way into the presence of God. What we're saying 
if we don't like that, if we don't fully embrace that and preach that to others, is that's not how I'm going to end up in the presence of God. Which is why so many people that are like that are so unhappy. Because they constantly worry. They're constantly under threat. They don't have what John said of the assurance of our salvation. You can know that you are saved, right? I had a conversation with a gentleman. He was incarcerated at the time, but he was raised in Roman Catholicism. And he said, outright, we can't know. It's impossible. No one can know whether they're saved. I took him right to John and showed him right there. You can know your... He was astonished. He'd, he'd grown up in Christendom, you know, but had never been shown and assured you can know you're saved. You can know by trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Is he your God? Can you say that this evening? Did you walk in the door a dirtbag? If you're shaking your head, no, you're wrong. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you did walk in the door because every one of us is. We're made up of the same 17 elements that are in the ground right outside that door. We're dirt. We're human. We're, we're, we're failures is what we are. Some of us, not as much as others. Some of us are squeaky clean, really nice people. Some of us. But in the end, we're all prone to failure. And it is Christ. Accept, will you, as we begin this evening, accept his comfort. Accept his grace. Accept his love. You know, is he telling you to work on things? Is there is are there big things that need to go out of your life? Maybe, you know, get rid of them. Surrender. Let Jesus have his will rather than you. Yeah, right. That that stuff needs to be dealt with. But in the end, let him love you. Let him comfort you. Then he says in verse 2, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended or is ended, and that's much more important that it is, it's, you know, written in such a way in the original language that it's present tense. It's already over. The warfare is ended. Now, our warfare is it doesn't feel like it sometimes, right? It feels like it's present tense. It's not. You know, when it says we're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ, that's because it's already over. The battle's already won. We don't have to win a victory. You know, we, we do have a battle we're engaged in, but the victory we have is the victory Christ has already won. That her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, if that seems out of place, the interpretation is a little bit, um, you know, in the King James language and, you know, 1600s that idea was much more accurate to the original language in that uh, it, it had the idea of it being a mirror like you would see you would see things double and the idea is that the punishment that she has received is equal to the crime that was committed so you know, the original language, it doesn't have this idea of like, I, you know, I, you know, they were bad and therefore they got spanked twice for it type of idea. That's not what's being said. It's the idea of 
the the punishment mirrored the transgression that it was an exact representation you got to parse out the original language um, and, and you know you gain the understanding of she's received exactly what was her due now you know for the bride of Christ for the church today that was met by Jesus Christ that that the punishment that was necessary for each one of us Jesus Christ met that and that's significant I mean you listen to certain false teachers, you know, Ellen G. White, uh, Seventh-day Adventism, and, uh, you know, she tell you that uh, Jesus' uh, sacrifice was not enough. You know, now, Adventism has moved away from that doctrine, but she taught that adamantly, that, that we as believers had to finish the work, uh, and that's in writing, so it's not something that we just think she taught and therefore say that falsely about her, she falsely taught that Jesus began the work and it was up to us to complete it. You know, the state of Maine has generated some pretty weird teachers along the way. Alan G. White being one of them. So, you know, this whole idea is that the punishment is exactly what was deserved. Jesus Christ took my punishment. That's hard to think about when I consider all that he went through. I put him through that, that old song, Who Killed Jesus, many years ago. Was it Roman soldiers with their tools of war? Was it? The list goes on. And no, it was I killed Jesus with my sin. Thank goodness that he took the exact punishment, that there's nothing left. I couldn't pay. I couldn't pay that which was due for my sins. Be comforted in knowing that the exact amount was paid the way it was supposed to be. There's nothing that hangs over your head. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if your mind immediately flashes to John the Baptist, absolutely right. John uh, was even asked, you know, are you the prophet? Are you, you know, one of the prophets? Uh, you know, the, the uh, rumor had begun that he was Elijah or you know that something uh, you know else was being fulfilled, and he said, "No, I'm I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You know, make straight the way of the Lord." This was something that was done uh, when dignitaries were uh, coming into a region, particularly once Rome took power and uh, Roman kings were going to come into a particular town or you know region, uh, territory, or county. The people, the people of the region would take it upon themselves to uh, grade their roads and to cut down the overhanging branches and to level out the rough places and, you know, refortify the bridge that he might cross over to make the way that the king was going to travel to come visit their area as smooth as they could possibly make it, as safe as they could possibly make make it for his arrival. You know, they, they didn't want their you know, king, their ruler, to arrive and be angry or upset about uh, the travel that he had to cover in order to come see them as a people. So this is the idea that's being said here, and it's, it's a spiritual connotation here given to us by Isaiah, and so wasn't it once John is saying that in the New Testament. 
he's saying your king is coming, right? He says to the people, you know, pointing at Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You know, make straight the way. Get rid of all the crooked paths. You know, I, I remember coming to Ellsworth uh, years ago in that last section of Route 1A that would come down into town. You know, 20 years ago, it was like somebody just ran the paving machine through the goat path. It was, you know, it was horrible. It was just boulders and up and down and sharp corners. And, you know, it was a pain in the butt when they held us up for two years and re-engineered that road and straightened everything out and, you know, dug everything out. But, you know, you can, you know, all the way from Bangor, you can come all the way into you know, what is the state police station there on the right? That's all one smooth shot. Uh, you know, if you were here years ago, you remember, especially what that last leg was like. The idea is the same. Make, you know, in your life. Yeah, there's a certain passage, a certain path, even in regard to your worship and your relationship with the Lord. Is it full of ruts, rocks, turns, ups and downs? Get rid of all that, is what the Lord is saying. Make, make the passage, make your worship, make your relationship with the Lord a very smooth passage. Something that the, the Lord can just enter into your heart and mind. You don't have to sit and be like, oh, here I am at church again. I really shouldn't be here. I probably shouldn't. You know, I really need, I got junk in my heart. That's not how the Lord needs to gain entrance. You know, he gains access to your thoughts and your minds, you know, somewhere toward the end of each service as the pastor gets all fiery. That shouldn't be it. You know, when the first notes are sung and as we begin to prepare our hearts, the, the heart surrenders and the, the quick, you know, when you wake in the morning, it's easy to just say, where is my Bible? How do, how do I get myself quickly into the presence of the Lord? That's the idea. It's being promoted here. Making that access a straight highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, uh, he's going to dwell on this in chapter 40 and then chapter 41 about how he has spoken, how he's prophesied a thing. And you know, I've referenced for us many times Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21, where he challenges the false gods. I've, I've referenced that a lot of times. I want us to be very clear about prophecy again. Uh, we, we often view it from an earthly sense and the idea that the Lord has spoken it, therefore it will come true. Okay, now that has an absolute truth to it, but that's our our observation of it. It is much more the other way around in reality. It is going to come true, therefore the Lord has spoken it. God has preordained these things. There is a path we are on. There is a course that is going to be taken that God will not allow to be moved. There's not anything humanity can do to change those courses. They are preordained by God. And as such, he can speak of them. 
You know, uh, we've talked about the fact that Revelation makes that statement that, you know, speaking of God, speaking of Jesus, you know, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the ever-present one. Uh, it, you know, we often say uh, he can see the past as well as he can see the future, and that's false. He he is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the ever-present one. Means he is in he is in the past presently. He is in the future presently, and the present are all the same to him. It's not it's not that he's here with us. All we've ever experienced in life is right where our present is sort of touching the present. We don't ever get to experience the future. We don't ever get to experience the past. We only get to experience the immediate, the present. That's we're just we're like the tire that's only touching that small spot of the road all the time. We experience nothing else. God is in the future. That's why he can say of us, we belong to him. He makes the statement how we are in the future with him. Before we die, we're already there. That's why he can say of you in your present tense that you are or you are not saved. Because he's already in the future and knows if you're there with him. Before you're born, he can say that of you. Right? We're going to see as we turn the pages in our Bible that quickly we're talking about Cyrus. The Lord refers to him as my servant 150 years before he's born. Names him by name. You know, when he enters Babylon and conquers them as a nation, the Jewish priests come to him and say, look, right here, this is your name. It depicts for you exactly how you just came under the Babylonian wall and conquered this nation. Cyrus was so impressive that, that that's where their freedom was declared. It didn't come for a little while, but the declaration of it is your God that has named me by name, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, therefore, you as a people are going to be set free. God, when he declares these things, you know, all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Yeah, he's spoken it because he's declared it and he's made it. There's no changing it. You read the words of Jesus, you, you see the book of Revelation, all that's predicted ahead of us, the things that are transpiring in the news today, predicted thousands of years ago. If you're not paying attention, it's time to wake up, folks. The Middle East is teetering on the edge right now. They're blowing up ships and shooting down you know, our aircraft, and we got people with their finger on the trigger ready to go. Israel is, you know, rapidly escalating in its circumstances, and its Muslim neighbors all around them that want them dead. You're, you're watching prophecy transpire. It's going to happen. Why? Because the Lord has said so. His comfort, His peace, the things, the preparation, the coming of the Lord, it's going to transpire. You know, the church is so... I love the fact that the church is sick of this message. I love that. The fact that they're like, oh, prophecy. Here we go again. Another preacher, hellfire and brimstone, end times, end of the world. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, I love the fact that there's that much boredom with the message because the scripture tells us that right before it happens, there would be this much boredom with the message. That means it's about to transpire. There's a whole bunch of people that are fading away from the message. I'm sticking to the message. I'm staying on the message because it is going to happen for those that are watching and waiting. The Lord is going to fulfill these things. The voice said, verse 6, cry out. He said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Now, there's a lot of ways to make that comparison, but you know the short-lived season, right? I, I see, I, isn't it great? You know, you see the forsythia go all yellow. Starting, now it's all green. It's kind of inconsequential. You know, fire red bushes of the spring, and they're all green now. And soon, they'll be all brown. And they'll just be sticks. And it'll be done. You know what I'm saying? You know, you guys aware that tomorrow is the first day of summer, right? For real, the 21st. I, uh, I'm a pessimist. I, I really am. You know, that means fall is almost here. You know? <laughs> it all, it all happens so rapidly. People say, oh, well, you know, our life is, you know, compared to grass here, but it's not like that for us. Yeah, wait another decade till you're measuring yourself a little different. You know, right now it feels like you just can't wait to be a little older. It's, it's a lot like racing towards that destination, and then when you finally realize that what you're doing is racing towards death and you just throw on the brakes, you find yourself just sliding over the edge before you can even figure out what happened. It's amazing how rapidly it comes upon us. You know, as far as measuring it according to grass, this is, you know, eternity we're talking about. You know, in our lifespan, we've talked about that, about the measurable percentages. You know, my grandson, he's, you know, four years old. And the poor little guy, just one year from birthday to birthday is like an eternity to him. It's just, you know, it's a quarter of his life. You know, he'll ask repeatedly inside a week or a month, you know, when is Christmas? You're like, guy, it's June, you know what I'm saying? And just your birthday is miles and miles away. When you're 50 or older, it's like, didn't I just blow these candles out? Like, how did I get here again, man? I just, you know. Because it's one fiftieth of your life. Why? Why am I even measuring this inconsequential fraction? You know what I'm saying? If I give you one fiftieth of the dollar that's in my pocket, you know, here's two cents. It's, it's meaningless. Such a small fraction of time. When you measure in light of eternity, you know, one million eight hundred thirty-six thousand nine hundred twenty-two years from now, what's my fifty years gonna mean? It's going to be really meaningless. I was 
having a conversation with a friend yesterday, memory loss, some interesting studies being done in memory loss right now. Really getting a handle on measuring how these things work. One of the things they're doing, we've often thought of it as like a deterioration of the mind, right? You go see Nana, she's nearly 100 years old. You know, she thinks you are your cousin. You know what I'm saying? It just, and we go, senility. Not really. What they're discovering is the human mind only has so much room for storage, for real. And so what your mind does as you get older is without your permission, without your permission, it starts going through the files because you continue to put stuff in. A lot of it's meaningless, but you continue to put stuff in. So your mind looks through the file drawer and says, we haven't accessed any of this in over 10 years. We're going to dump it all right now. And it does it without your permission. For real. And that continues to get so rapid that it does weird things. Like, okay, keep all of the images, but dump all the data that's associated with it. So you remember the faces, but none of the names. Have you begun to experience some of this stuff? Okay. Here's something to think about. You can control how much stuff you're putting into your mind. If you're putting countless hours of Netflix binging in, for real, you're compromising your brain's storage capacity. Yeah, so that when you're 80, 90 years old, you're confusing reality with memory. There's all kinds of, we're fragile people. That's my point. You know, we view this like, oh, just got all these years left. You don't have anything left. You're rapidly approaching the finish line. Your hour glory is fading rapidly. We, we have an illusion we live under of somehow being either immortal or at least something like it, and we're the farthest thing from it. We're very, very fragile. Very fragile. We're fading just like the grass. If you can look out and see the grass fading, the flowers changing, that's a forewarning to you and I. God, that's literally what God is saying, right? Well, how did we start this? The voice said, cry out. He said, what shall I cry? This is a warning. This is God saying to you and I, hey, wake up, you know. If I could shout right now and not freak everybody out in the room and have you so jangled that you didn't remember anything else in the message, I would. That's the idea is like sound the alarm, hit the air horn rattle the cage and tell people that they're nothing more than grass. Your time is going to pass like a flash and it's going to be over. You have to pay attention to how rapidly time passes by. It's not something that we should waste. You never get any of it back. The flower or the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. 
Oh, now there's something to concentrate on. Memorize God's Word. Commit God's Word to memory. You know, I said, Ankerberg years ago, uh, when asked, John Ankerberg, uh, people were insisting he had memorized the whole Bible, and he said, how he answered it was to say, I don't know if I've memorized the whole Bible, but so far every passage I've been asked about, I've been able to answer. He's he's put it, he's put the the process of committing it to memory, he's actually undergone that process. And he said he just continually is constantly working on refreshing that. That's quite a feat. I've shared before, you know, Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, it was 1997, the first time I saw him speak. He, he's 700 pastors or so in this giant room in Maryland where we were at the conference. He asked us uh, to turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. He starts uh, reading. You know, we're all looking at our Bibles. And uh, I look up, and uh, he's looked up from his Bible, and he's still quoting. And I, you know, I try to look down, but he's not looking down, and he just stays up. And he quotes the whole chapter from memory. Asks us to turn, you know, and starts to read. And as soon as he starts to read, he looks up and the guy never looks back down at his Bible. It just pours out of his mouth. There's it's no wonder there's more than 1,700 churches in Calvary Chapel and Bible College campuses all over the world. When a man has dedicated his life to the word of God in a way like that, you're bound to have a great fruitfulness in the world around you. You know, life, us, we, we fade, we're gone, we're forgotten very quickly. The word of God is going to stand. If there's one thing you can put into your heart and mind, that's never going to be taken away. I saw a pastor in, uh, I guess it was 1990. Uh, he was a member of a church that I belonged to. And um, he had suffered a very uh, traumatic uh, stroke. His brain was destroyed in the process. Could non-communicative, could not talk, uh, could not uh, could not communicate with people. His dear wife, uh, he had regained a lot of his mobility, but uh, he she said he insisted got to got to be at church every Sunday morning. So uh, older gentleman, and uh, you know, like I said, he was a pastor, but he suffered this traumatic damage. And I was sitting right behind him one Sunday morning and uh, realized that as we're singing the songs, he's singing. And I thought, well, that's remarkable. He can't talk, but these hymns, you know, from the old hymnal, he's singing them and not just mouthing them. He's singing them. You know, and as he sits there and uh, the pastor of Sternovan Chapel is reading from the scripture, he's mouthing the passage. It's committed to his memory. It's in there somewhere. Everything else has sort of been jumbled and wiped clean, but the word of God and worship is intact. That's pretty neat. I was really uh, impressed, but not with him. I was impressed with the word and I was impressed with worship and I was impressed with the Lord in that moment. But somehow it's internally, you know, eternally embedded in this man. 
It's a neat experience. You're never going to regret you know, committing the Word of God to memory. But the Word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, good news, the gospel, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Do not or be not afraid. Said, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Make the declaration. Don't shy away from this message. You know, the New Testament saying to us that you know those who are ashamed of the Lord or will not proclaim the Lord uh, before the world, the Lord will not uh, proclaim us before his angels. But if we will, will not be ashamed and we will declare, then he'll declare us. What a great blessing. What a wonderful promise that if we will, you know, stand up and declare to the world. I, uh, here's something I want to warn you against. Now, take to mind what this said in the beginning. Comfort. <coughs> yes, comfort my people. Don't, do not take what I'm saying as some kind of negativity or condemnation. If you have this practice, I want to encourage you to stop it. It is what I refer to as a Jesus voice. Okay? And that's where you're talking like this, and you're with somebody who's a believer, <clears throat> and they bring up something about the Word of God, or you know, your faith at all, and you go from this down to this, where you now want to talk to them about Jesus. You got a Jesus voice or a Jesus volume? Okay. I think there's um, something dangerous about that, of um, being ashamed of the gospel. If I'm talking to you like this about uh, the new movie that's coming out, then when I talk to you about Jesus, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus just like this too. I'm not going to pitch forward and talk a little lower and make sure that our conversation is a little more private. I freak a lot of people out by just talking about the Bible and Jesus at this level in public, you know, without, you know, privatizing our message and our conversation. Declare it. Behold, you know, we need to stand up. We're the, we're the city. We're the people of good tidings, of the gospel. The world needs to hear this message. The world needs to have this presented to them. Not, you know, what do they say? Rammed down their throat, right? That's not what we're trying to do. I mean, it's, it's that our message is as viable a message as anything else the world has to offer. It isn't somehow lesser. It isn't something that is diminished, you know, other conversations, other circumstances, uh, they're more real or so. No, this is the most real message. The, the, the good news, the gospel that we have, share it, declare to the world, lift it up, do not be afraid, save the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold. Verse 10, the Lord will come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them 
in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. There's a, a bunch of things said here uh, regarding shepherds and the shepherd. Uh, John chapter 10, Jesus has a lot to say about his being the good shepherd and he declares things about those who call themselves shepherds within the body of Christ who are hirelings and behave in ways that are not shepherd-like. Here he's you know, talking about how he's going to reward and uh, provide and have this strong hand and rule, but then he moves right to the idea of being a shepherd. So the leadership, the rule will be like a shepherd is, is sort of what's being said. It's more or less what's being said. Uh, shepherds have to, I wish God likened us to some other creature, something more noble. I really do wish that in my pride and in my selfishness. I wish that he did not compare us to sheep because sheep are stupid. Man. They're just so dumb and so helpless. They, they, they Sheep, uh, oh, I had the opportunity at a pastor's conference in New York uh, to listen to a pastor from Scotland, and he shared a number of things with us. And he one of, one of the things he talked about is um, sheep uh, can get scared and die within 24 hours because of how they allow their emotions to rule their lives. Um, you know, uh, he... Uh, gave a particular instance where um, where they are in Scotland. Um, he had the coolest accent, but um, he there was a group of dogs that they ended up hunting them down, but they're just stray dogs that had banded together. And uh, they're literally just mutts and mongrels and household dogs, but now they're semi-wild and they're just roaming around. And uh, they got into this pattern uh, there in where he is. There's several farms that raise sheep and they all help one another. And the dogs each night were going from uh, pasture to pasture. And uh, he talked about how, you know, some of these dogs are just little household dogs, you know, little Bichons and meaningless they're not some great wolf they could never even kill a sheep they don't even have but they chase the sheep all night literally all night just chase them back and forth along the fence line some of them so small can't even get inside the pen where the sheep are but the sheep the next day so scared they won't eat won't, won't eat anymore can force them to eat and as soon as you stop forcing them Eat, literally putting it down their throat. As soon as you stop, they won't regain. Within 24 hours, they fade off and they're dead. I, I've seen the same thing inside the body of Christ. People have things attack their lives that realistically aren't even all that harmful. Scare them as a believer to death and they just will not return to the word of God and fellowship with the church and prayer. Just embittered or brokenhearted or something scare them from their faith. And in a very short period of time, dead in their faith. You know, was that due to their salvation? I got no idea. That's between them and the Lord. 
But I'll tell you, as a shepherd, as a pastor, it's freaky to watch. Here, sheep are so fragile. When it's making this statement, you know, he will feed his flock. He will gather the lambs in his arm, carry them in his bosom. This is something they specifically did as shepherds because sheep don't even know enough to move on to somewhere else to eat. They'll stay in a pasture and graze it right down to the root system. And if somebody doesn't move them on, they'll eat the roots out of the ground. And then they'll just stand around in a big dirt patch and starve to death. Have you spent too long in the same passage of God's word? Is it time to grow up and move on? Is it time to start serving the Lord? Have you grazed in the same place too long, brothers and sisters? God will bust up your circumstances. The ewes lead the flock. The strongest, largest, most dominant females lead the flock. There's something to consider there, ladies, about your effect on the body of Christ. Consider. So what the shepherds will do is take the lamb that belongs to that ewe away from its mother and carry it on his chest or over his shoulders and walk away. And as that little lamb bleats and cries and bays for its mother, she will follow. And then all of the flock will follow. And he'll lead them into another pasture and close the gate and put the sheep down and then they'll all eat there. There's something about how the Lord works. He's going to rule. He has this mastery, but we're so simple and so lame that we've got to sometimes be forced into the next place. We've got to be forced into the place where we're going to feed, where we're going to grow, where the Lord is going to do what he wants to. You know, he gently leads, right? He could drive them like cattle. Right? Go get some of those dogs. Get them to chase the sheep. Throw rocks at those dumb sheep. He could do all that. Instead, what he does is just take one of the young ones and lead them to where they belong. So that they can eat. So that they can grow. So that they can become healthy. Don't be convicted by it in the sense of condemnation. Right? Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says my God. If the Lord is speaking to you from that, be comforted in it. We're dumb sheep. <laughs> it doesn't feel very comforting. But if we can just examine the result, the healthy result, then we can say, okay. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. There's a question mark there. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or who has, or excuse me, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is all in the negative. It's a rhetorical question. No one. No one ever taught God anything. 
It's impossible for us to understand God. Impossible. You know, I, I'm completely repetitive. I've got no new tricks, so forgive me. But you know, that illustration, once again, uh, you know, the size of the universe. If this thickness of paper represents 92.6 million miles between the sun and the earth, right? So if the sun is on this side and the earth is on this side and this paper is 92.6 million miles, if we use this as a representation, to go from the sun to the edge of our nine-planet solar system, and we're not, we're not talking about even the entire width, we're just talking about the middle, the sun, out to the edge. You're talking about greater than nine inches. You'd have to put another 92.6 million miles after the Earth, and then another 92.6 million miles, and another 92.6 million miles, a sheet of paper each time, until you had nine inches. It's a big solar system. You want to get to the edge of the known universe, okay? And sometimes I've they recalculate this all time about how big the universe is, so it changes, but that's not my fault. It's because they don't really know how big the universe is, and they're constantly changing what they say they think they know. But currently, if if you did that with the likeness of a piece of paper to get to the edge of the solar, not the solar system, the universe, you're talking about 21 miles away. 92.6 million miles over and over and over and over again. And that's from our solar system out to the edge. You know, the sun, as massive as it is, you know, there are many stars out there that are 30, 40, 60 times larger than ours. God calculated, what, 70 plus percent of our whole water hydrological system on this planet in the palm of his hand you know just that little pocket you know hey you ever done that like where you're cooking you know making bread or something and you just need to add a little more water you don't even need just just a little more in the palm of your hand and put it in and loosens things up a little like you know i gotta like create life on this planet it's dry just why don't we add, I don't know, this much water? <clears throat> Life measured in the pond. You go, that's ridiculous. Really? you got to consider the ordinary miracles you experience every single day. You know, I've, I've talked about vision, hearing, how miraculous they are. People don't even consider that. You know, I'd love to see a miracle. Really? You're seeing one right now. Right now, the energy that we have captured is flowing out of these lights. It's traveling through the room as a light wave. It's hitting my body. And if we just talk about my shirt for a minute, my shirt is absorbing everything except for blue out of the color spectrum of that light. It's the blue that's bouncing off toward you. That's why you can see blue, because my shirt's absorbing all the other colors, and the blue is bouncing off. So my shirt is actually everything but blue. The blue is then traveling as a, a, a light wave, but just in this specific pattern, as I move and change where my arms are, 
it changes and it travels through the air to your eyeball where the convex lens flips those patterns over upside down they are projected onto the retina in the back of your eye which converts them to an electrical impulse which is then quickly converted into a chemical signal which ends up inside your brain which your brain flips over right side up and tells you what you're seeing i call that miraculous you know you know one little change in the structure of your eye and suddenly you don't see color the way you used to you know i uh my father-in-law was inside an armored personnel carrier in vietnam and a grenade went off next to it and the concussion that ran through that vehicle damaged his eyeballs in such a way that now he has color blindness to a certain degree he can't you know he's got to ask like do these socks match you're walking around experiencing miracle every day you know this statement here about god measuring the dust weighing them out to the scale you're going to understand how miraculous every single moment is of every single day oh you know the simple one-celled organism really i mean have you read about the simple one-celled organism because it's not simple it's unthinkably complex the whole thing is designed and built based upon a blueprint known as dna you know little tiny molecules inside there are going to the dna and copying segments of it and taking it to portals at the side of that single celled organism and if it isn't copied exactly the rna that it's now in possession of isn't copied exactly the port will not open it reads the rna and says nope not copied right has to disassemble it go back read the dna copy the segment again build its structure come to the portal when it's right the portal will open and transports it outside that's not simple as other molecules build the chemicals that form together as a molecule and fold up exactly in the pattern they're supposed to to create the new cell that's being copied from the original cell miracle every day every single day countless miracles your body's constantly defending itself against all kinds of invasion not even asking you for permission things are just entering in through your nasal passage end up in your bloodstream invasion your body takes that thing and then has to bring all kinds of defensive mechanism to it until it finds the right combination to attack that invasion disassemble it and get it out of your body and then it copies down all the information about that invasive property and stores it so that the next time it shows up it doesn't have to go through all that process of raising a fever and sending antibodies it just knows let's get the file on object number one gajillion pulls out the file and sends all the appropriate stuff and manages your body antibodies being built wonderful process miraculous process you know you read a thing like this and go oh really god measured the mountains in the scale apparently 
We're all down here as these microscopic beings in comparison to the grandeur of the entire universe acting like somehow we know better than God. It'll be a startling day for many people. Who is his counselor? Certainly not us. We're a bunch of buffoons. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are a drop in a bucket. There you go. That's not just some clever statement we came up with. It's scripture, a drop in the bucket. The nations are a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scale. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. There was a practice in the day in the marketplace. How to put this? In Hungary, okay, the country, when we were there, you can't hand them the money. They literally will pull back. Am I right? You try to hand them the money at the counter, and they, they will lurch back. And because we didn't speak English, they would point at the tray. And there's a tray on the counter. And you set your money down, and then they pick it up. And they do the transaction, and then they put the money back in the tray. You're all right there inches away from one, one another, you know? We in America, I don't know if you've noticed this, we commonly set the bills down in the person's hand and then the change on top of it. Have you ever noticed that we do that? <laughs> we have little things we do, okay? The money in the tray in Hungary is honesty. I'm not going to do some sleight of hand right as I hand you the bill and then insist, oh, I gave you a 20. And they're not going to do some sleight of hand as they hand you the money and then act like, oh, no, they put it down. And then when you pick it up, you're, you're taking the responsibility. The moment of honesty is when you look down and go, oh, I'm sorry, I gave you a 20. So before you pick that money up out of the tray, that's where the honesty is supposed to take place. Blowing the dust off the scales in this ancient world was the honesty of the moment. When you were going to make a purchase, right? Right before you finish the rat last transaction with someone else, and now they go and put their stuff, and then they put the weight on the scale. Before the next transaction, they would symbolically just bend over and go and blow the dust off the scale. Okay, It's a meaningless gesture. There's no dust on the scale that's going to change the transaction. Right? But if you didn't blow the dust off the scale, they literally would stop the transaction and look at you like, you're going to blow the dust off or what? It was the idea of you're going to be honest or what? Right? Any of you that have worked in retail know when you take the money, you set it on the register. You do the transaction with the money setting on the register. You don't take that bill and put it in the drawer. Right? You wait till the transaction's done and they've approved of it and they're now stepping away that you put the money away. Because they can say, I give you 100 I gave you a 20. I gave you something different than the change you've given me back. This blowing the dust off, this is God saying that's how meaningless all of these things that you think are so grand, right? You round the corner and there's the view of the mountains and you just go like, oh, wow. You know, it's a breathtaking moment for you. God is saying, yeah, I just blow those off the scale." It's nothing big to me. That's what God is saying here in the moment of the mountains 
which you're so obsessed with, these great things which you're just so impressed with, that's something that when I do the transaction, I just blow it off the scale before I begin in order to show my honesty. Think about that. Meditate on that. The things we're so impressed with in this world, they're a meaningless little gesture to God. Okay, how about this? To put this in perspective, from the heights of Mount Everest, right, to the depths of the Mariana Trench and the deepest point of the ocean. If you took a basketball, right, and you blew that basketball up to the size of our planet, those little round dimples that help you grip and those lines around it that form the ball would be thousands of times taller and deeper than Everest and the Mariana Trench. If you reduced, if you reduced the planet down to the size of a basketball and it just weighed as much as a basketball and I put it in your hands, it'd be like the most finely polished marble you'd ever held. You wouldn't be able to feel Mount Everest. Somebody could like circle it for you. And you'd be like, I, it's, it's right here. The things we're so impressed with that we're just, we stand in awe. I can't even believe what I'm looking at. On God's scale, meaningless. Just blow that off. Think about this in light of how hung up on ourselves we are. We're so impressed. We, oh, we've studied. We've learned. Oh, this certain scientist, he's so impressive. Meaningless. Meaningless in the scale of eternity and the scale of God. Small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles. Very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. All the trees of Lebanon, the great cedars, I couldn't even get a fire going with that, God is saying just meaningless you know ever watch somebody try to build a fire with not enough wood those of us that are from maine doesn't it just drive us nuts those of us that have built fires all of our lives here's somebody trying to get a fire going with two sticks and wet cardboard and you're just like what'd you get out of the way you know just let me show you how to build a fire God is saying, if you gathered up all the trees of Lebanon and split them into fine kindling for me, I wouldn't be capable of kindling a fire for myself. It's meaningless. It's small. It's insignificant. We get those things we're so impressed with. We stand in the redwood forest. We're just like, oh, wow. God's like, I hadn't hardly noticed. Doesn't really mean much to me. Why? Because I'm God. You're comparing things from your microscopic view. That should really put it into the view for us of how much God cares about us. Sent his own son to die for you. He's not, he's completely unimpressed. He's completely unimpressed with the mountains of earth. You guys like blown away by Acadia National Park? Maybe it used to be, you know what I'm saying? We all live here. You know, you go down to Thunder Hole and show your friends, and like, don't even really look at it. <laughs> because we're not affected. God is not impressed with that which he made. Yeah, I made that. 
Lebanon. Not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. Take all the forests and all the animals and make a fire and burn them all as an offering. So what? God is unimpressed with it. All nations before him are nothing. They're counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? With the workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, the silversmith casts silver chains. However, excuse me, whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot, right? Don't get high. Like try to get some cedar or something. It's going to last. You know, get something that's not going to rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter, won't topple over. Oh, what a dumb thing in comparison to God. Oh, you're going to have a God that's made of gold, silver, wood. Better get one that doesn't rot, right? You know, I, years ago, I was in AA. And uh, you got all these people with different higher powers. I've shared this before as a guy there was was really heartbroken because his Harley Davidson was his higher power and it was broken down. He's, he was upset. And all I could think to say to him when the meeting was over was, Guy, if you can buy spare parts for your higher power, you need a different higher power. You need a real God, not something that could tip over. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of earth useless. God knew the earth was a sphere, long before humanity figured it out. Hundreds of years before Jesus, thousands of years before Jesus, Proverbs is saying the earth is a sphere. Humanity figures it out later. That's always the way it is with pseudoscience. God declares a thing as it is true, and then we figure it out later. We are always catching up with the wisdom of God's word. We're always catching up. You say, oh, well, it was Christianity that insisted upon, you know, the flat earth. Well, it wasn't the Bible. The word of God declares the earth to be a sphere. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither. The whirlwind will take them away like stubble. As far as wiping out the nations, as far as wiping out you know, the earth and all that is in it, God's just going to breathe on it. It's all going to dry up, be done and over. There isn't some massive process. We read the book of Revelation. We're like, oh, that's so frightening. The apocalyptic end of the world. God describes it as his breathing on it. You know, He says that he is going to consume the Antichrist, with the breath of his mouth. That's all. 
When Satan is finally captured and thrown into the pit for a thousand years before the final battle when he's ultimately thrown into hell for all of eternity, they send one angel to get him. One. There's not some massive cataclysmic war between all of the armies of heaven with God at the helm in order to capture Lucifer and subdue him. They send one angel. Why? Because he's one angel. He's a fallen angel. And they just send, I'm convinced they're just sending one nerd angel to go get him. You know, the, the one angel with, you know, thick glasses and I don't know what, just always reading books. Go get him and send him down. Schmegly the angel. I don't know. Just, it's not, it's not a, my point is, it's not some great army. You, you know, you see Hollywood's depiction of heaven and hell at war with one another. It's just so cataclysmic. That's not what the scripture describes. When it comes time, it's over. He's going to consume his enemies with the breath of his mouth. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me or whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. And that's the way, you know, Satan and Hollywood and humanity depicts it, right? Like Satan's the opposite of God. Like you got God over here and you got Satan over here. And it's like yin and yang, you know, good side, the bad side, the light and dark, you know, the dark side, Darth Vader and all kinds of stupidity. These things are not in balance. They're not warring against one another. God created the earth, gave it to the human race. The human race was dumb enough to give it to Satan. You're not aware that that's how that all went down? Romans 6.16 says, whom you obey, that's your master. Adam and Eve were obeying God right up until they disobeyed God. And then who were they obeying? Satan. I'm not saying that figuratively. Satan said, go eat of the tree. They said, okay, and ate of the tree. They obeyed Satan. Whom you obey, that's your master. That's why the earth is in the condition that it's in. We see horrible things happen. People refer to them as acts of God. No, they're not. They're acts of humanity more than anything else. Our sinful effect upon this world. There's not a balance. Who are we going to compare these things? Who's my equal? No one. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number, the stars, literally, who calls them all by name. He's named them all. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing in reference to the stars. He's numbered them and named them. So if you go online and you choose a star, and name it, and they take your money and send you a certificate, and literally you've named that star, and all of science will know that star by that name, won't you be embarrassed when you finally stand in front of God and God says, nope, that's not that star's number, nor is that that star's name. I numbered it and I named it. Would you like to know the number and the name? Right? Originally, we thought there were a little over 3,000 stars. Those with the best vision had literally laid out under a square grid and counted all the stars in that square and then all the stars in that square. And all. And they came up with a little more than 3,000 stars. Didn't know they were only looking at one segment of the sky, but, you know, a little more than 3,000 was the collective reasoning of humanity until the invention of the telescope. And suddenly, the number was more than double that until they created a better telescope. And the number was more than 10 times that second number established 
And each time we create a new telescope, we discover there are billions more. We're all just basing it upon what we can see. God knows where they all are. Who, who can you know, argue with me? Who can compare? I've numbered all the hosts of heaven. Verse 27, we'll wrap this up. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Why, why do you say God isn't noticing my circumstances? You know, my bad circumstances. God, you know, I, I'm in a terrible circumstance. Why isn't God paying attention to me? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable or unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. What a wonderful thing. If you came here tonight and you get your act together and you're all dialed in, you can just close your Bible and leave because this power isn't for you. It's for the weak. It's for those who are meaningless. This is who God's paying attention to. If you've got an accusation against God, why isn't God noticing my circumstance? God is saying, I'm noticing your circumstance above anybody else's. The ones who are suffering, the ones who are in trouble, the ones who are weak, who have no strength, that's who I'm paying attention to. The people who think I've got it all together, made in the shade. God says, okay, go ahead. If you're calling out and saying, God, where are you? Please help me. He says, I'm right here to answer your call. And maybe that's the only reason you're here tonight is because God is paying attention to you. He wants to answer. Hear it. Hear what he's saying. We started with comfort my people. I can't think of a more comforting statement than God wants to take care of you. What is your circumstance? He's right there to do what you need. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young man shall utterly fall. Those that we would look to and say they are the most adept are the ones who are going to fall by the wayside. And then we all should know. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Now, this waiting on the Lord, it's not like sitting in the dentist's office waiting just wait why isn't that guy done just i i had to show up 15 minutes early and now it's 20 past and why do i have to it's not that it's not the drudgery of waiting on god the word translated for wait means to be interwoven with you've got to be interwoven with god Right? What do we hear Jesus say? I'm the vine, you're the branches, those that abide in me. That's where you're going to find your strength. You want this strength that he's promising you? Then you're going to have to be in the word every day. You're going to have to be in prayer every day. You're going to need to be in fellowship. If you're not doing those things, no wonder we're weak. No wonder we fail. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on the wings of eagles. Notice this. Notice this. Okay, he doesn't start with, if you will wait upon the Lord, you'll be able to crawl like a babe. And then eventually, you'll be able to walk. And if you continue, 
then you'll be able to run. And if you just stay with it long enough, you'll be able to fly. He starts with those that will wait upon, be interwoven with me. They'll shall mount up with wings of eagles. The very first thing you're going to need to do is enter the heavens. You're going to need to get close to God. It ends with walking and not being faint. It digresses. You want to function on planet Earth. You want to be able to walk through life. You want to be able to do the daily tasks and things that you want to and need to do. You're going to have to start by flying. You're going to have to get into the heavens. You're going to have to get into the presence of the Lord. You're going to have to mount up with wings of eagles. You're going to have to be interwoven with Him. That's where it begins. Begins on your knees. It begins in prayer. It begins by reading His Word. You don't start in the low places of the earth, walking and crawling and doing simple things. You got to get right up and fly into His presence. You got to know who Jesus Christ is. You know John, the Book of John. You know, likened to the eagle's face in prophecy upon the living creatures. You gotta fly into the presence of the Lord. You gotta see him in his deity. You gotta see Jesus for who he is if you're gonna have the strength. You know, people try to bring him down low, try to bring him down to the human level. Yeah, he'll do that. The thing you're gonna have to recognize above anything else is how unearthly he is. Think about how elevated all this expression and measure was of God that we just read about. It has little to do with this earth. Everything he referenced of earth was low and meaningless. You want the strength? You've got to have heavenly mind. People say that, right? Oh, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. That's not possible. You can't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Now, you can be so arrogant and condescending, no one wants to hang out with you. That has nothing to do with being heavenly. Right? We just saw that if you're heavenly minded, then you're very humble. You have to elevate your mind to the place of God. The scripture, the word of God. Have I said it enough times? Prayer, praise, singing, sharing your faith, being interwoven with God. Those are the things that are going to give you the strength you need day to day. Make sense? Does all this line up for you? Lend you the comfort, right? Isn't that where you started? Comfort. Comfort my people. Be comforted with the strength that the Lord is offering us. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, thank you again for your great love, your mercy, your kindness, your benevolence. Oh, Lord, your forgetfulness, the way that you overlook our, my failures, and you just accept us as we are. So kind, so good. Help us to cling to you. Help us to cling to you. That we would have and experience your strength. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.